I've gotten into the habit since launching this church to just dive right into the sermon. And I'd like to break that habit. Much like we're changing things with the pastoral prayer, I want to pray before the service too. Before the sermon. What I'm going to do is call a prayer of illumination. It's asking the Lord to lead us in this time to open up His Word, to open our eyes to understand it. So, as we go, let's pray. Lord, this is a mighty task to step into your word. It's a humbling time to approach it. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears. Lord, help this word to form us and shape us, to remind us and build us up into the image of your Son. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn our attention then to the Gospel of Mark. The text can be found in your bulletin, if you have it there, or if you have your Bible, you can grab that and look at the end of chapter 8 in Mark. Today, we're going to spend some time wondering what value is it to follow Christ? What will it cost us? What will we gain? Or, put more simply, is it worth it? And I really like that question. Is it worth it? Our culture lives and dies by that mantra. Is it worth it? The question asks for something. Be it time, entertainment, money, growth, whatever it is. It presumes a certain worth for who you are and what you are doing in life. As a church planter, I had to ask that question a lot. Are things worth it? Is the cost to benefit ratio worth it? Early on with Trinity, we needed to get our legal status stabilized with the state and with the federal government. Our finances needed to be organized, so I contacted a company that's out in D.C. that helps organize church plants legally and financially. They've done it with a number of different churches, big and small, all around the country. Never done it in Iowa before. It was recommended to me by a number of different planters. But with all that work, to get it set up legally, financially, there was a cost, financially, for us. So I gathered the elders at Hope, spoke to Tim and Dan, and we asked the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to pay this much to get all this organized? Is it worth it to keep an eye on our finances this way? And we found it to be worth it. So we move forward. But that's a big idea. That's a big question. It doesn't need to always be big questions, right? Sometimes we have small decisions to make and we ask the same question, is it worth it? When I finish my day after working for a long period of time, I have dinner with the family. Noel goes to bed and Jess and I sit down. And we decide to ask the question, what are we going to do? Often turns into turning on Netflix and starting to scroll. We start asking the question, is this movie or show worth it? Is it worth our time to watch? Will the entertainment outweigh the loss of time? And I will be honest with you, having scrolled for a long period of time, a number of movies on Netflix are not worth anyone's time. That's just how it goes. These kind of conversations and judgment calls happen all throughout our week. Just this past week, I had phone calls happen. I had books being offered to me. I had meetings. And I had a conversation about bringing RUF to Iowa. 
I received emails to attend and contribute to two church planting conferences. A new book came out by the writer of three very big sitcoms that happened over the last 20 years, and he is writing a book on ethics, and it came out this past Thursday. I had to decide if any of those pursuits were worth my time, were worth the church's time. I'm sure all of you could give similar lists about the decisions made, about all the choices that were done this past week. And behind all those decisions is this question, is it worth it? Our text today doesn't ask the question, is it worth it? It doesn't. There's no concern of value in our text because Jesus declares to his disciples and to the crowd, following me is worth it. It has more worth than any pursuit you have in this life. It's a good declarative moment for Jesus. He doesn't shy away from the heavy cost of following after him. He also doesn't shy away from describing the great worth of following after him. And he does all this while pointing out the emptiness of following anything else. And so we can get two lifestyles portrayed to us through our text from Christ. Cheap discipleship and costly discipleship. All of us are disciples of something. Or as David Foster Wallace likes to say, all of us worship something. We all bow down to something. Deciding what it is, that is the question. So now I'm asking you, is it worth it? Will we find out then what is cheap and what is costly? I pray in the end, we will find the value of following Christ. Though it does cost much, it is indeed worth it. So let's begin with cheap discipleship. Let's find out what it's like. For those who are taking notes or are in the note-taking mood, real easy outline to follow outside of these two points. We are going to answer three simple questions about cheap discipleship. What is it? What does it look like? And why is it cheap? We hope that this will help us figure out if it is worth it. So, what is cheap discipleship? Verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now what we have here is two disciples, two followers. Our first point focuses on this first disciple. And the first disciple is described as someone who is interested in saving their own life. Doesn't sound like a bad thing. We have a deep desire within ourselves to live, to be alive. We rage against the dying of the light, as Dylan Thomas told us to do. But this disciple is not merely struggling or raging to stay alive. They are focusing only on their life. They have blinders on. Only the person in the mirror is important. The disciple here is a disciple of themselves. They live in a me-centric world, a me-universe. As Calvin and Hobbes has put it, the earth was a cloud of dust 4.5 billion years ago. Three million years ago, the first bacteria appeared. Then sea life, dinosaurs, birds, mammals, and finally man. Now, in 1988, there is me, the pinnacle of evolution. Cheap discipleship is following only what you want to do. 
You are the only one who can fix the world. You are the center of attention. It does not matter what the rest of the world thinks. It is you and only you. And you will follow you all the way to the ends of your earth. Simple definition of cheap discipleship is a you-centered life. So what does it look like? What does cheap discipleship look like? That's more complicated. It's more difficult. Because there are shades of cheap discipleship. Shades of people who are selfish and egocentric. You all know this because you've seen it. I can give you extremes and we'll try and find a middle ground for us to settle in. Try and balance it out. Verse 36, Christ asks the question, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Now that's touching a little bit on the why. The way cheap discipleship looks is often in the pursuit of the whole world. It's in ownership. It's in money. CEOs, hedge fund managers, high-ranking officials, men and women whose sole pursuit is to watch the number go higher in that bank account. I spent some time with these people. Many of you know I was in Greenwich, Connecticut before coming here. And Greenwich is the center of many hedge funds and generally considered one of the wealthiest places in the entire world. It's mansion after mansion, Lamborghini and Ferrari dealerships. That's what I saw. And the description of the financial world by these people who are pursuing finance was ruthless. They would do anything to get to the next step. Anything to achieve more money, more wealth, more recognition. It doesn't matter if you were selling out your best friend or your family. If you could gain an upper hand on things, you were in a better position. It was an eternal struggle, a spiritual struggle almost, for the pursuit of true happiness in their minds. And true happiness is found in being the wealthiest, the most powerful. Now before Greenwich, I was on the other side of the country. The other coast, San Diego, travel up to L.A. on occasion. It's a great hot dog place called Pink's in L.A. If you're ever there, go check it out. But there, the people weren't chasing money that much. Yes, it was there, but more importantly, it was fame. Fame is what they wanted. They want to be famous at all costs. Morals went out the window. What kind of blurred lines can I find so that I can draw attention to myself? Anything to make me the center of attention. Anything to get me the star on the walk of fame. And if you're ever walking on the walk of fame, don't make eye contact with these people because they are slightly crazy. They're trying to draw attention to themselves. Actors and actresses that think they are actors and actresses. So they follow you and they try and get noticed. Chasing you down. Now you may think we don't have that here. In the breadbasket of America. In the Midwest. I was the heartland, not just because it's the centerpiece of the country, but because we have heart. That's why we're the heartland. But the disciple of me is prevalent here too. The stakes aren't as high, it doesn't look as crazy or outlandish as the two coasts, but we still have it here. It looks more like having the best car in the neighborhood. Or having the best lawn. It looks like inviting the neighbors over and the co-workers over just to show off the new kitchen. To show what kind of food you have. Like, oh, this is what we eat normally. You guys don't eat lobster? What's wrong with you? It isn't so blunt as to turn against someone. But it is to say, oh, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're sweet. They're great. 
It says, look at who I am. Look at what I have done. Look at how great my family is. I own this little corner of the world. This is me. This is what I did. And Christ gives one more description of the chief discipleship. Verse 38. Those who are ashamed of Jesus Christ and ashamed of his words. And here I'll say again, we see shades of this cheap discipleship. Because all of us get it. We get it. Self-centered living is obvious. Descriptions of people who are only out for themselves aren't too hard to find. We can spot them, even here in Cedar Rapids. The world is full of them. What we have here is a description of people who are ashamed of Christ. And we can put a far picture away from us, right? The ardent atheists who mock Christians and they say the words of Jesus are just foolish and we don't even know if he actually said that. That's crazy. They're ashamed of growing up in the church and now they react against it. That's a simple picture. But there are shades because there's cheap discipleship for Christians too. There's cheap discipleship in the church. Verse 38 is right here for us Christians. A Christian who is knee-deep in cheap discipleship looks at verse 38 and is scared. They say they follow Christ. They attend church regularly. They may even know the Bible quite a bit. But when the time comes, when push comes to shove, they are having a conversation with somebody out in the world and they shy away from Christ. They don't want to talk about the problematic verses in the Bible. They don't like that a torture and death are the centerpiece of our faith. They don't like that churches have something called discipline. They don't like membership in general, actually, because membership means responsibility. It means hard questions. It means aligning yourself with something beyond yourself. You want to choose what you believe? You want to pick what you choose? Decide what's important? The church takes your autonomy away when you become a member. The church says, you are not the disciple of you. You are the disciple of something more. Christians, we can slip into this very easily. It's dangerous. Do we get uncomfortable when the confession of sin happens during the service? We don't like having to come before God and admit our sins. When the law is read and the silence occurs, we start thinking about the show we watched last night. Then suddenly you come back to it and everyone's starting to talk again and you have a public confession. You kind of mumble along like, oh, yeah, I'm there. After the sermon, you don't like to, to, to declare the confession of faith because it aligns you with something older and grander than yourself. So you don't really say it. You mouth some of the words. You don't get noticed. And then you quickly take the bread and the cup to stop side eyes from looking at you. All the while stopping up your ears to the warning that's given every Sunday. If you do not believe, do not take the supper. This is something all of us need to be aware of. And it's something all of you need to be keeping me accountable of. Do I speak the gospel without mentioning a bloody cross? Do I soften it? Do I say all are welcome for the forgiveness of sins, but then also forget to point out the great cost it took to get that forgiveness of sins? Church, my, my sermons are prime time to hear the word of God. I spend all week working on them, but they are also prime time for me to cheapen discipleship. 
Turn it on myself to say, I am who you need to pay attention to. Listen to my words, because that's the most important thing this week. Or to turn it back on you and say, hey, what what does your heart say? What is your soul saying? As though your feelings are what you need to pay attention to and not to the word of God. We need to keep each other accountable because cheap discipleship slips in. It comes through the back door. It can turn ugly real fast. Which is what brings us to the why. Why is it cheap? Why? The world holds up this idea of being true to yourself. Other people are just bringing you down. You would only look out for yourself. If your friends and your family reject who you truly are, find new friends and family. That's how you can finally achieve the life you want. That's how you can finally earn something. So why is this cheap? Why is this considered cheap discipleship when we're just looking at ourselves? Because it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you anything at all. Cheap discipleship is cheap because it's always about gaining for yourself. It's never about losing so others might gain. You can push me and say, well, the truly self-centered, the ego-driven people, they'll lose family and friends. Sure, but it's not that expensive for them. In fact, that's small potatoes to them. Who cares if friends and family drift away? They were dragging you down anyway. What difference does it make? The real cost is what's going to end up happening. So it's worth the loss. It's worth the loss to lose family and friends, to find your true self, to be who you are actually. The same is true for Christians. Cheap discipleship for Christians means losing nothing. Even if you leave the church, you were never connected there to begin with. You avoided membership to avoid the problems of the church. Even if you claim Christianity as your faith, you don't bring it up to your friends, or you soften it for your friends because you don't want to feel their hatred, their scorn. You make it palatable for the benefit of yourself only. Cheap discipleship can be whatever you want it to be because it's you and you alone who decides what makes a disciple. So after all that, is it worth it? Is a life of loneliness worth it? Is a life pushing ahead to gain something only to realize it's nothing? Is it worth it? Christ says, the ones who are ashamed of him and seek to save their own lives will lose their lives, and Christ will be ashamed of them. That's what they earn. The great cost. As great as your life may be here with fame and money and a great car and a nice job, an enviable house, new kitchen, it's beautiful. The payoff of being a disciple of yourself is cheap. You've already earned your reward. You will only get worse from here on out. <laughs> That's a horrifying statement. Have you considered life could never get better from this point on? Because that's what it says. It's all downhill. If we pursue cheap discipleship, there's nothing better for you. Now, that's the first lifestyle we've seen. It doesn't sound good. Let's move on to the second, costly discipleship. Again, I'll make it simple for everyone. What is costly discipleship? What does it look like? Why is it costly? Hopefully we can get to a point where we answer, is it worth it? 
First, what is costly discipleship? Verse 34. It's a good description of costly discipleship. Christ calls the disciples and crowd to him and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And costly discipleship is denying yourself. It is other-focused. It is the opposite of cheap discipleship. Where I am the center of everything, this is the denial of yourself. Not in the Eastern mystic way that says, deny all worldly goods and desires so you can find enlightenment. No, costly discipleship is, a follow, is about following Christ to the death. Bonhoeffer describes a disciple of Christ this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's exactly what Christ is saying to these people. Costly discipleship, following after Christ, will cost you your life. Not just in the sense of wasting your life or taking up all your time. The reality of what Christ is saying in verse 34 is, you will walk the path of death. You will carry a cross to your own demise. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, we all have our cross to bear. As though the cross is some difficult struggle in life. Christ is not pointing to a 35-year-old Steve and saying, Hey, Steve, you're struggling with anger because, well, the Packers lost the playoffs last week. I know, that sucks. We all have our cross to bear. You have your anger and I have a literal wooden cross that I'm carrying up to a hill, a torture device that I will bleed on and die. Same thing. No. That's silly. Christ is telling his disciples and the crowd, those who follow after me can lose their life. They will give it up for something other than themselves. So they need to deny themselves. They need to get out of their internal desire. They need to get out of that me-centered universe. Costly discipleship is other-focused. So what does costly discipleship look like? First, it doesn't always look like brutal, brutal torture and murder. It doesn't always end with a systematic arrest, tried and tortured murder of yourself. I'm not saying it will definitively happen. I am saying that is not outside the realm of possibility, though. Nearly all of the disciples present for this teaching were arrested, tortured, and put to death. Not to mention all the followers of Christ being tortured and killed throughout the first few centuries. The missionaries that have since gone out and been killed throughout the remaining history of the church. And even today, in this very moment, people are suffering. Not in this country. China, North Korea. Very strict rules on churches and preaching the gospel. Pastors and parishioners have been arrested with the key thrown away. I'm not trying to scare you. I wouldn't even say I'm trying to fire you up and say, hey, let's do it, let's go. Ends of the earth kind of thing. What I'm trying to do is show you the truth. The sobering truth about this calling that a Christian takes. Those who follow Christ, death is a possibility. It is on the list of possible outcomes for those who truly follow after Christ. Now for us in our modern Western society, we most likely won't be facing a crucifix anytime soon. So what does costly discipleship look like for us in our day-to-day -day lives? 
Well, Christ is less descriptive beyond the loss of life in our passage. But I think we can take some clear illusions from the opposite of cheap discipleship. Right? Cheap discipleship looks inward for you and you only. Money, fame, power become driving factors for the cheap disciple. Loneliness ends up what happens on their plate. That means a costly disciple involves losing money, fame, and power. Not just losing it, but actually actively giving it up. Costly discipleship means not having the high-paying job because in order to get it, you need to step on someone else. You need to cut someone off at the knees, and you won't do that. It's not what Christ would do. It means giving some of your wealth away to the benefit of others. It means giving money and time to feed the homeless. It means changing your dreams to pursue Christ. It means losing nights and weekends helping people in the church. It was said that Martin Luther's wife, Katharina, an escaped nun, stopped giving Martin spending money as he went out the door. She took over all the expenses in the household because Martin would go out with the money in his pocket and instead of getting milk and bread and whatever else she said, hey, go get this for the house, he would see someone sitting on the ground begging for money and he would give everything out of his pocket. He couldn't help himself. He needed to give up. He needed to go care. He needed to take care of someone. In his mind, this was it. This is what a Christian should do. Costly discipleship is giving up everything for the sake of following Jesus. It means losing family, friends, jobs, respect. It sounds like cheap discipleship, but it's not for the same reason. It's not because you're chasing your own dreams. It's because you're chasing after Christ. There was a man I ran into while in New York City. We were on the same track. He wanted to be a pastor, though he was a number of years older than I was. Mid to late 40s. And I was late 20s, early 30s. He obviously had a prior life and job for being on the same standing of the track. So I asked him, what, what did he do? He said, well, I was in finance. I was a higher up at one of the banks. Spent a long time chasing after that. And he said, matter of fact, like, at 42... He had made enough money to retire and to let his kids live comfortably for the rest of their lives. At 42. And it occurred to him, as he was thinking about traveling, about doing all kinds of things, he didn't want to spend the rest of his life hitting beach after beach, getting tan. So he went to his pastor and he expressed interest in helping out at the church. It started small, turned on the lights, cleaning up afterwards. Gradually he got more into it, leading, helping. A few years in, and he had caught the bug. Started attending seminary, was pursuing with all his might the desire to preach the gospel to the people on Wall Street. He gave it all up. He gave up the beachfront property. He gave up rest, relaxation, ballooning financial security for himself, for his family, all for following Christ. There's another guy a year after us who was stepping forward to be licensed to preach. And he told his story. He was a male model in Italy. Spent the last 15 years living the life focused on looking good, pursuing the heights of fashion. And he looked good. <laughs> I was impressed. But now he had become less. He'd given it up. He became less so that Christ could become more. And he wanted to show people that he had found something more. 
decided to lose fame, he decided to lose money so that he could become a pastor. Now, these stories are shocking. They're often fantastical. They seem out of the blue. But they describe the truth of costly discipleship. Right? They're telling us what people are willing to give up to follow Christ. And I'm not sitting here saying, hey, give up your life. Give up your job. Become a preacher. It's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm asking you is, what have you given up? Do people in your neighborhood know that you're a Christian? Do people you work with know that you spend every Sunday going to church in a cold and dark room? Do you share that all that God has given you? Do you open up your home? What is a hardship you have experienced in life as a result of following Jesus Christ? Jesus says that we will all deal with it. All who follow after him will give up their lives for the sake of following Jesus. What have you given up? What have you lost in the midst of all this? Now the why. Why is it costly? But we've just gone over that. They blended together. Any person who is truly following after Christ will lose something. They will lose respect of the world. They will lose financial security. They may lose their lives. They lose family, friends, whatever it is. Following Christ is costly. But is it worth it? Well, what does Christ promise to those who follow after him? First, he promises death. Yeah. But then he also promises life. It's costly to follow after Christ. It's costly to lose much and deal with the hatred of the world, to carry around the knowledge that at some point you may have death at your doorstep. But the promise is for those who lose their life, they will gain it. Those who follow after Christ will find true life. As Christ describes it elsewhere, it is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. He goes and he sells all he owns so he can buy the land with the treasure in it. We lose something, but we gain so much more. It's not just an afterlife thing. It's not like our eyes are focused on heaven some may tell you, hey, your life currently is going to be garbage, but don't worry, one day when Christ returns, everything will be gravy. It's going to be great. Those who follow after Christ do have better lives, even now. They found something deeper. They found something truer. They found something more wonderful than anything that this life can give, and that's why they're willing to give it up. That's why they're willing to give up their goods of this world, to not chase down the high-end jobs, the high money, all that kind of stuff. Nothing is compared to the goodness of Christ. The life promised in Christ, it's going to be difficult. It will be. There will be down times, but the Christian life, even before heaven, is better than a life without following Christ. And now that transition, because all of that is granted to us through what would be considered the greatest cost. Not our lives, but the life of Christ. So we've spent our time talking about the value of following Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is talking about in our passage. He 
He's telling everyone, if you follow after yourself, you may gain a lot in this world, but you're not going to gain anything of substance. If you follow after me, you may lose a lot in this life, but you will find something far more substantive, far more valuable. That's what he's talking about, this whole promise. But the truth is, a costly discipleship is always, always, always preceded by a costly grace. Christ paid the ultimate price to make us disciples. Jesus just told his disciples he must be rejected by the elders and the scribes and the high priests and then be killed. That was the previous paragraph. It's the same conversation. Bonhoeffer says the grace of God is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much is not cheap to us. Costly grace is the Son of God on a cross. Costly grace is the Son of God who has been tied down and whipped 39 times. Costly grace is a tomb set aside for a king. All for us. It's all for us. So you may think that it is a lot to be asked of by Christ. To say, hey, pick up your cross and follow me. You may think you don't want to give up your whole life. You don't want to deal with the dangers of death. But no, Jesus did it for you already. He gave up his life for you. And the Christ who laid down his life for us now calls us to lay down our lives to follow him. Yeah, to live a life of costly discipleship is to risk it all. To show the world true beauty and treasure is found in the loss of yourself. To point others to the costly grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our faith placed in him, we find true life, eternal life, far better than any goodness we could find. So is it worth it? Is it worth it? It is absolutely worth it. It is absolutely worth it to lose everything to gain something far better. Brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers, sons and daughters, pick up your cross and follow after Jesus Christ. Let's pray.